Radio 3, live on the web, rthk.org.hk. Good morning to you. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong. Welcome to the end of the week. It's Friday the 17th of February. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk on Radio 3. Further inflation data from the US shows wholesale prices rose by more than expected in January, keeping pressure on the Fed, uh, on the Fed to raise interest rates. Annual producer price inflation, which tracks prices customers pay to U.S. producers and suppliers for goods and services, slowed for a seventh straight month to 6% in January. That's the lowest since March 2021, but it was well above market forecasts of 5.4%. And month over month, the PPI increased 0.7% in January. That's the most in seven months, and also higher than market forecasts of 0.4%. China's home prices finally narrowly ended a 16-month slide in January. It's the first time since August 2021 that home prices didn't decline. The average new home price in 70 medium and large cities in China remain unchanged in January, compared with a quarter of a percent month-on-month drop in December. Hong Kong's seasonally adjusted unemployment rates edged lower to 3.4% in the three months ending January, the lowest since the three-month period to December 2019, and down from 3.5% in the previous reading. Unemployment declined in most sectors, particularly in the construction sector and the consumption and tourism-related sectors, and a government spokesman said the SAR's labour market is expected to improve further, supported by the gradual normalisation of economic activities, a recovering tourism sector and the full resumption of normal travel from mainland China. Figures released by Hong Kong's Census and Statistics Department on Thursday showed the city experienced a net outflow of 60,000 residents. That resulted in a 0.9% drop in the city's population. And that was the third straight annual decline in Hong Kong's population. And the Philippines Central Bank raised its benchmark interest rates by 50 basis points to 6%. That was in line with economists' expectations. The move came as inflation in the country hit 8.7% in January on an annualised basis. That's its highest since October 2008. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Louis Coyce, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, Director at Staten Advice. And thank you for all your messages and comments recently. Please keep them coming. Text them to 63935925. Email moneytalk at rthk.hk. We're on Facebook, Money Talk and RTHK Radio 3. And you can tweet us at Money Talk Radio 3. On Wall Street, US stocks and government bonds sold off following the PPI data, as well as figures that showed the number of Americans filing for jobless claims last week remained near historical lows. The S&P 500 dipped 1.4% to 4,090. Tesla weighed on the S&P, falling almost 6% after it recalled almost 363,000 vehicles and warned that its experimental driver assistance software which is marketed as full self-driving beta, may cause crashes. The Dow shed 431 points, or 1.3%, to close at 33,697. 
The Nasdaq Composite fell 1.8% to end at 11,856. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index climbed 0.2%, as did London's FTSE 100. And yesterday, Hong Kong stocks recouped some of the previous day's steep sell-off, but they closed well off their highs. The Hang Seng Index gained 176 points, or 0.8%, to 20,988, having been up almost 500 points at the high of the day. The tech index rose 1.8%, retreating from gains of 4.3% earlier in the day. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite fell 1% at 3,249. Standard Chartered announced a 1 billion US dollar share buyback on Thursday following disappointing fourth quarter results. The emerging markets focused bank said profits before tax were just $123 million in the final quarter of 2022. That was an improvement on the loss of $208 million it made a year ago, but it was far below analyst estimates of $571 million. Profits were hit by exposure to mainland China's real estate market. The bank reported total credit impairment charges of $838 million. Uh, that's up about $575 million year on year, with Chinese property firms accounting for most of this. And addressing speculation that First Abu Dhabi Bank was evaluating an offer for Standard Chartered, CEO Bill Winters said the bank was absolutely not for sale. Shares of Standard Chartered closed 2.7% higher in Hong Kong. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil slipped half a percent to $84.82 a barrel. Gold is unchanged on the day, but is on track for its third straight weekly decline. It's trading at $1,835 an ounce. And the US 10-year Treasury bond yield rose six basis points to 3.86%. That's the highest level of the year so far. And in the currency markets, the US dollar has continued its rise. The euro this morning trading at $1.6.5. The Japanese yen has slipped to 134.08 versus the buck. One British pound buys almost $1.20 and nine Hong Kong dollars and 40 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.87 versus the dollar in offshore markets. And Bitcoin jumped above $25,000 earlier in New York. That's its highest since June 2022. But it slipped this morning in Asian trading down right now at $23,500. And Asian stock markets, uh, all in the red this morning. The SX200 in Australia off half a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has declined 0.6%. In South Korean trading, the Cosby is off 0.9%. And futures markets pointing to a decline of about 150 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. It's 8.10. I need to put my pin in the global map and find out where Andrew Ferris is this morning, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Which part of the world are you in, Andrew? Oh, for God's sakes. You really flatter me too much, Peter. I'm in London. <laughs> well, at least you're heading in the right direction, back this way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and firmly ensconced in our Queensway studio, we find Louis Coyce, who's Chief, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Morning, Louis. Morning, Peter. Um, so we have two economists with us today, so let's make the most of that and discuss the economy. There's a, a data vacuum from China at the moment, but plenty of data from the US uh, to look at. 
We had the producer price inflation data um, out last night. It slowed for a seventh straight month to 6% in January. That's the slowest since March 2021. But it was well above market forecasts of 5.4%. Uh, but it is down now from a June high of 11.3%. But inflation still remains well above the Fed's target range. Month over month, the PPI increased 0.7%. Uh, in January. Uh, that's the most in seven months. And the PPI figures come days after consumer price data inflation uh, slowed only slightly uh, in January. And recent jobs growth and retail sales have also been resilient, despite the Fed's efforts to call the economy by raising interest rates. So, Andrew, plenty of data now um, out of the US over the last uh, few days. Inflation data, retail sales data, jobs data. Um, what's it telling us about where the US economy is? Uh, the, the, I've got three points here, none of them Nobel Prize winning stuff. Uh, the key, the key target is, of course, is inflation. And inflation is coming down, but it's not anywhere near. I didn't even want to breathe and say the 2% because it's not going to happen uh, as far as the Fed is concerned. And, of course, brackets, still real interest rates remain very, very much firmly on the negative side. In other words, we're having in, uh, interest rates between 45 to 7.475% and inflation at about the 5.5% level. So in other words, you're having real interest rates, anything between 1.5% to 2% minus. So that's phase. The second part is, of course, the other bits in the economy that will be important for the Fed, including, including the labor market, are a mixture, uh, a mixed bag, but the majority of them are sort of plus as opposed to minus, and that means that the Fed is not, doesn't seem to be anywhere likely to be stopping as opposed to increasing interest rates. And, of course, once this is done, and this is my third point, which is virtually unanswerable, for how long will the Fed would like to see the inflation stay where it is before it says the beast has been killed and, therefore, mm. time now for, let's say, cut interest rates or at least declare that we're not raising them anymore. Well, and that we can't possibly know. So I'm looking for another year of either high stock increase in interest rates. Well, what I wanted to ask you there, you said the Fed, um, inflation's not going to get down to 2%, which is the Fed's target. So what does the Fed do? Does yeah. it ignore its target? Does it change its target? What, what happens? No, I will tell you what the Fed will do is what all economists <coughs> said he cleared in his throat following Keynes, do, which is famously said, what happens when data and facts change? I change my opinion, sir. Okay, so Fed will say, I don't know, I'm just making this up. Four and a half or three and a half percent looks all right. It is stable. Uh, the rest of the economy has blah, 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 blah. Time for us. Uh, to cut. Now, they're not going to suddenly change target or simply mm. increase the target in order to meet their falling inflation. Okay. Okay. Louis, what, what do you think about the, uh, the state of the US economy at the moment? Because obviously it's important, isn't it, for us over here and in particular what happens to interest rates? Yes, <clears throat> it's very important. I think, personally, I think the US core uh, inflation is the is the, the the most important variable in the global economy at the moment. And as Andrew said, the progress with inflation coming down is 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 not fast and in fact if you look at things month on month things are really not looking very good because the uh, price increases uh, went up in january so the the decline is not fast enough and the longer that inflation remains high the more that people will start to increase their 
expectations of where inflation mm. will, will go in the medium term. Uh, Andrew raised a good question. Will the Fed eventually change its target? I think at the moment in the US, there's not yet a lot of appetite for. I don't think a lot of, uh, I mean, I, I definitely not if you ask any Fed official, are you contemplating that? They, they will definitely say that they're, they're not going to do that. Uh, this, this remains to be seen. I personally think that where this will lead to is that in, uh, interest rates are going to be higher for longer than the, than the market thinks. I, I, I'm wondering, I mean, perhaps the easy part of bringing price pressures down have, have been won now, if there is such an easy thing as a battle against inflation. We've gone from 9% to 6%. But isn't the next bit going to be much more challenging, trying to get them now from 6% down to 3% or the Fed's target of 2%? That looks much, much harder to me. Well, you know, say, um, in the beginning with this inflation story, a lot of emphasis was put on the energy and commodity price part. We had it was supposedly, you know, kicked off by by higher oil prices. Now the oil prices are really not an issue anymore, so we cannot blame it on that. This is all about the domestic economy, wage increases, and wage increases, uh, you know, being uh, feeding through into higher higher prices. And so this wage price spiral is very much ongoing, and mm. the only way to the only way to stop that is to cause pain to the economy and it looks like there's not enough pain in the economy mm, the data certainly doesn't suggest that does it if no. anything it's sort of it shows it seems to be rather resilient to the pain at the moment yeah it's yeah. interesting because as andrew said you know it it depends on which part of the economy you're looking at there are you know, interest-sensitive parts of the economy, like the housing market, where we do see things cooling, slowing down, but that doesn't, you know, that that doesn't seem the picture for for many other parts of the economy. Mm. And Andrew, the Fed is right, though, isn't it? It's um, it's been saying, unlike the markets, have been rather pricing in rate cuts this year. Uh, the the Fed's view of the economy, which is that it's just not slowing fast enough, and it's far too early to ease off from increasing rates. They they look to be on the right. Uh, that they look to be right well there are again two two things here i mean one is is a trivial point and you know the well-known uh, uh saying you know don't fight the fed well all right fair enough don't fight the fed the second point is of course i don't have the slightest doubt that in the back of their mind of the fed is, is uh, having failed to increase interest rates soon enough the last thing they're going to do is to actually stop increasing or beginning to decrease again too soon in other words they they have this time, they have to get it right, and I suspect they might be much more willing to get it right at the negative side, in other words, overdoing the high interest rates rather than giving quickly. Mm. Uh, at least this is, uh, God knows, you know, I have no idea how to interpret it. Occasionally, it becomes like biblical interpretation, right? Uh, you know, it, it depends which you read and where you read and the tone of the voice by which you read it. Uh, but that makes some sense to me, okay, that they may very well keep it quiet for a while. Not for a while. I believe if I look at the trajectory, I, I have simply said to myself, another nine months interest rates much more likely will go up by perhaps another 75 uh, basis points altogether, perhaps. Mm. Okay. And uh, we're not going to see a clear sign saying we've stopped hiking, okay, till the end of 23. So hello, next Christmas. Mm. Um, Louis, I want to switch to China. What's happened to our China data? We seem to be in a bit of a, um, a void at the moment, don't we, in terms of information about how the Chinese economy um, is, is doing? What, what's your sense of what's going on? 
Well, yes and no. I mean, there's definitely not a lot of this normal monthly data that we mm. look at, you know, industrial production, in, uh, uh, retail sales, stuff like that. We do have the PMI data uh, that was quite good in January. And uh, the, and it was especially good for the services sector rather than manufacturing. So b- both increased, but the service sector really uh, strengthened a lot. And we have, you know, now, nowadays quite a bit of that higher frequency data on all types of activity and, you know, like on housing sales, uh, construction projects, uh, mobility, uh, cargo, these types of things. And so these indicators point to a decent recovery at the moment. Mm. I mean, President Xi Jinping is focusing very much on consumption. um, And he asked once again this week local authorities to step up measures uh, to spur consumption. What can the authorities do? What can the central bank do? Well, there's a lot that the fiscal authorities could do, but they've been pretty adamant in Beijing that they don't really want to go for the kind of Western type of, you know, uh, fiscal largesse towards the towards households. That that mm-hmm. is not really in the DNA of China's economic policymaking, and not many people expect large amounts of such fiscal. Uh, expansion to take place this year either so it's going to have to come from that recovery as you know as people start to move about and spend again especially in in, you know that consumption service-based type of activity Mm. Um, Andrew, I mean, one one piece of data we did have was bank lending. It unexpectedly rose to a record high in January. Chinese banks extended almost 5 trillion yuan. That's about $720 billion in new loans. Just doesn't seem to be going into consumption, though, does it? If anything, um, households are using it to pay down their mortgages. So we've got the authorities now saying these loans are being misused. Yeah, well, uh, I, I will take a step backwards because, of course, the Chinese authorities are very aware of what they are doing and where they are going. Remember, at the time that we in the West were rolling on the floor, terrified of inflation, the Chinese were looking completely puzzled because they were having an inflation of less than 1%. Inflation was never a problem in China. What mm-hmm. was the problem was a slowdown in the economy imposed by completely physical, man-made constraints. So their overall reaction and economic policy has to be looked not through Western eyes. Will they increase interest rates? Won't they increase interest rates? Isn't it terrible that money supply is increasing so much? Isn't that inflationary? And so on. But it has to be looked in terms, as you rightly pointed out, in terms of consumption. And hence, if there is, in inverted commas, any failure of their willingness to see the banking system extending their loans, is that this is going to go into into consumption and uh, also we have to remember that the population has exited a period of unbelievably tight economic policy that mm. was massively reversed with no warning whatsoever well you know they might be a little bit timid by saying that all is over and everything is very well which of course they will have every right to although there is no evidence against that so yes the data in china don't show any spectacular return uh, to consumption and growth, precisely because it had nothing to do with economics specifically, mm. but it had to do with an absolute policy decision, of which the reaction to is clearly taking time. Okay. Um, Louis, I want to ask you a couple of things about Hong Kong. First of all, we had this data from the Census and Statistics Department, which showed the city experienced a net outflow of 60,000 uh, residents 
resulting in a 0.9% drop in the city's population. That's the third annual decline in Hong Kong's population. And the city also registered the lowest number of births since records began in 1961. Explain a little bit about this sort of demographic change where you're getting a population decline. What what sort of impact does it have on the economy? Because obviously you feel that there is going to be some sort of long-term impact. But can you sort of explain a little bit about how that feeds through to the economy? Well, I'm not a demographer, but I, 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 I do look at these types of uh, data and what they mean for the economy. I think we need to distinguish the longer-term trend from some more cyclical, shorter-term trends, right? I think the, uh, the net decline, I mean, basically people leaving in significant numbers, is hopefully a short-term phenomenon, like, uh, you know, uh, amplified by the COVID situation. And I would, I would be very surprised if 2023 would see, uh, you know, a number anywhere close to 60,000 people leaving on a net basis. I think also the 60,000 is, uh, is less bad than what it was in 2021, right? Mm-hmm. So the, I think these numbers are already moderating. But we do, of course, at the same time, have that longer-term trend that we see in many countries, many economies, many territories, especially also here in Asia. We, you know, we know in China it's happening to quite a degree. South Korea and, and, and Japan are even more advanced in that demographic transition. And Hong Kong is very much out there. I mean, if you look at the demographic projections for Hong Kong, even abstracting from any COVID uh, effect, we see how the population is aging uh, as and, and how births are coming down that is very much part of that uh, of that demographic transit transition and it's not helpful to the economy first you simply have fewer people fewer bodies but also what, what we see from uh, from places like like japan is that it kind of also reduces the vitality and energy in, in the economy you know you know like the the ability to innovate things like that so you know uh, this is something that governments need to watch for and and to also to see how can we offset some of those pressures like by for instance extending people's work lives like what mm. uh, what macron is trying to do in france uh, to the chagrin of his population okay well thank you both very much great to talk to you and have a good good weekend Uh, You heard there Louis Coyce, who's Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Andrew Ferris, who's the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Times 8.25. On the phone from Australia is Toby Lawson, Director at Staten Advice. Morning, Toby. Yeah, good morning, Peter. Now, I've got a, a question that a listener would like me to ask you. I've received a text from Sam, who lives in Hong Kong, but wants to know what's going on with interest rates and inflation in Australia over the coming year. She and her husband need to refinance their mortgage, and they're wondering whether to lock in a 5% rate or a variable rate if interest rates drop below that. Now, obviously, I know you can't give individual personal financial advice, but could you tell Sam about your <laughs> thoughts on the direction of interest rates in, in Australia? Yeah, well, um, I hope Sam's listening in. And, uh, yeah, I won't give any particular personal advice on what I would do in relation to the financing needs. Uh, but, look, uh, if I can put it where we are, we're at 3.35%. Uh, the Reserve Bank government is currently being grilled by the Senate and the House of Representatives in Australia. And at this stage, the terminal rate uh, expected on rates in Australia is around 4.1%. So we've still got a way to go. And that will likely happen in a series of 25 basis point rises up towards at 4.1, which is where most of the market's sitting. 
Mm. So then you can you can extrapolate how that affects mortgage rates. But from there, I guess the question then becomes how quickly could they come down, um, and therefore is it worth uh, you know making a decision in terms of fixing? I think they're going to stay high for longer, and I think this is consistent with how we're seeing it from the US and other uh, parts. Is that inflation is maybe peaking, but it's uh, it's still going to stay persistently higher than the target rates for most central banks' comfort. The Reserve Bank of Australia's Governor Philip Lowe, he spoke on Wednesday at that Senate uh, committee and he said inflation at the moment, which is 7.8%, is way too high, needs to come down. So it tends to suggest, doesn't it, that this is the real focus at the moment, the consumer price index. And just like, as you say, in the US, it's not moving in the way in which uh, the RBA hopes. Yeah, well, the RBA comfort level and target level is 2 to 3%. So 7.8% is a long way away. And if the independence of the Reserve Bank, uh, their mandate is to keep price stability, that is currently not the case, so they have to work towards it. Their instrument to do it is, is interest rate monetary policy, and uh, so they have to, you know, there's no choice. So they're going to continue. Now, the question becomes, because uh, interest rate and monetary policy is a bit of a lag effect into the economy, the question then becomes how, how hard do you have to go in order to get the effective change, and you'll get a lag in that. And I guess this is where the debate is right now. Mm. And what impact is this having on the housing market in Australia overall? So the housing sector, uh, prices of housing has, uh, has gone uh, down, let's say, t- between 10 and 15%, uh, depending on where you are, and likely to continue to soften. Um, but in terms of mortgage stress, in terms of uh, negative equity, as an example, you know, where people have suddenly now borrowed more than the value of the house, it's only in a very, very, very small increment at the moment, probably less than one one percent of homes with mortgages would have negative equity, and even another ten percent fall likely to see uh, only around a one percent impact. So, um, I think there is mortgage stress. There's no question. It's very uneven in the economy. Clearly, some are suffering more than others, but the overall uh, impact of higher interest rates in terms of stressing to the overall housing sector is still quite minimal at this stage. Mm. Well, one of the interesting things about this hiking cycle, which in many countries around the world, it's one of the fastest uh, paces of interest rate rises that we've ever seen. But yet, as you say, it's not really causing too much pain at the moment for households, is it, in terms of their mortgages anyway? Not like um, what we saw back in the global financial crisis, for example, where there was a lot of pain. Yeah, I think, uh, well, partly there's a couple of things. The equity that a lot of people have in their houses is very high. So the pool of savings in Australia is very high as well. Um, so uh, the capacity to absorb the uh, very sharp increases in rates, and again, we're coming from pretty much flat to three, uh, so let's say about a 300 basis point move. Um, the capacity within the existing equity within a home and the funding of it through the pool of savings that a lot, a lot of Australians have means that they've been able to absorb it at this point in time. Now, that's not to say everyone is, and there's a clear sign that some are suffering, and this is where the government may have to intervene through the fiscal side of the equation to support them. But uh, overall, um, the structure of the housing market in Australia is still strong, and uh, whilst we'll see a continued softness, um, we're not seeing a huge amount of dislocation. Toby, thanks very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who's director at Staten Advice. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And a look at markets for this week right now in Australia. Uh, The SX200 is down 0.6%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 off half a percent. Same story for the Cosby in South Korea. 
And in about an hour's time, when trading here in Hong Kong starts, looks like the Hang Seng is going to fall about 150 points. Thank you very much for listening this week. Have a great weekend. Please join me once again on Monday morning for a new week of Money Talk. Back chats coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast for today, mainly fine, cool in the morning, dry during the day, maximum temperature of around 21 degrees. And the outlook is for sunny intervals tomorrow. It's going to be rather warm on Sunday. The winds will strengthen gradually with cool mornings early to midweek next week. Temperature right now, 16 degrees, and it's 75% relative humidity. Time's 8.31. Here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. About 60,000 people left Hong Kong last year, according to official estimates, with the SAR's population falling by about 68,000, or just under 1%. It's the third annual population decline in a row. Births also hit a record low at 32,500. A government spokesperson said COVID was a factor, but that the situation should improve as normality returns. Paul Yip is a population expert from the University of Hong Kong. The signs looks a bit promising. At least the outflow is not as fast as before, but I am not quite sure. I think the trend can be reversed uh, immediately. I think it really depends on the performances I think of the Hong Kong government and also the uh, and the situation as a whole. Whether we make Hong Kong as a livable and city, I think for the Hong Kong resident, yeah, to you know the that uh, they are not living as many as they were, and also we will be able to attract the foreign talents. The first school in Hong Kong offering the mainland curriculum is set to open in 2026. The Education Bureau has allocated a site for the non-profit-making private school in Tin Shui Wai, which will be run by the Yu Chung Yu Education Network. It hopes to serve mainland families living here who later plan to return to the mainland. But local children will also be welcome. Esther Chan is from the network. We'll be closely monitoring the market uh, over the next three years. We have plans to open years one to four in the first year, as well as the first year of secondary. In terms of the, the number of students, I don't want to speculate at this stage. An educator has welcomed news that Hong Kong will have its first school offering the mainland curriculum. Mervyn Chung from the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Organization says he hopes authorities can smooth out issues to open the school even earlier as it ties in well with Hong Kong's desire to learn to lure mainland talent. He cited possible staffing issues such as having mainland teachers working in Hong Kong or local teachers learning the mainland curriculum as well as the two sides having different teaching methods. From my previous visits to schools on the mainland, they seem to be quite tied down to the curriculum laid down by the government. Also, the kind of teaching, mainly following textbooks and school-provided materials. And then in Hong Kong, we stress a lot the importance of school-based development, school-based materials, and also school-based instructional methods. So these kind of things would need to be better regulated. On the one hand, sorting the curriculum, tossing schools on the main end, and at the same time, fitting the educational environment in Hong Kong. The Politburo Standing Committee says China has achieved a major and decisive victory in its COVID-19 prevention and control since November. The statement was issued after a meeting in Beijing presided over by President Xi Jinping. Finally, the U.S. traffic safety body has told the car maker Tesla to fix software problems in more than 360,000 of its vehicles. The regulator said Tesla's self-driving software could cause a crash by letting the car exceed speed limits or travel unpredictably. Tesla says it will release a free software fix. We'll have more news on the hour from RTHK. 
Good morning. This is Back Chat for Friday, February the 17th, 2023. Welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Yuki Tang. Buckle up, drivers, tech geeks, and transportation policy wonks. And foodies and animal rights people. On Friday's Back Chat, we're talking about the HKE toll booth scheme after the government decided to postpone the launch of a 